0: Welcome back to my Relaxing Literature Podcast. Tonight we're continuing our reading of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. We're currently on Part 2, Chapter 7. The author's love of his country. He makes a proposal of much advantage to the king which is rejected. The king's great ignorance in politics, the learning of that country very imperfect and confined, the laws and military affairs and parties of the state. Nothing but an extreme love of truth could have hindered me from concealing this part of my story. It was in vain to discover my resentments, which were always turned into ridicule, and I was forced to rest with patience while my noble and beloved country was so injuriously treated. I am as heartily sorry as any of my readers can possibly be that such an occasion was given, but this prince happened to be so curious and inquisitive upon every particular that it could not consist either with gratitude or good manners to refuse giving him what satisfaction I was able. Yet, thus much I may be allowed to say in my own vindication, that I artfully eluded many of his questions. And gave to every point a more favorable turn, by many degrees, than the strictness of truth would allow. For I have always borne that laudable partiality to my own country, which Dionysius Halicarnassensis, with so much justice, recommends to an historian. I would hide the frailties and deformities of my political mother, and place her virtues and beauties in the most advantageous light. This was my sincere endeavor in those many discourses I had with that monarch although it unfortunately failed of success but great allowances should be given to a king who lives wholly secluded from the rest of the world and must therefore be altogether unacquainted with the manners and customs that most prevail in other nations the want of which knowledge will ever produce many prejudices and a certain narrowness of thinking from which we, and the politer countries of Europe, are wholly exempted, and it would be hard indeed if so remote a prince's notions of the virtue and vice were to be offered as a standard for all mankind. To confirm what I have now said, and further show the miserable effects of a confined education, I shall here insert a passage which will hardly obtain belief. In hopes to ingratiate myself further into his majesty's favor, I told him of an invention discovered between three and four hundred years ago, to make a certain powder into a heap of which the smallest spark of fire falling would kindle the whole in a moment, although it were as big as a mountain, and make it all fly up in the air together, with a noise and agitation greater than thunder. That a proper quantity of this powder rammed into a hollow tube of brass or iron, according to its bigness, would drive a ball of iron or lead, with such violence and speed as nothing was able to sustain its force. That the largest balls thus discharged would not only destroy whole ranks of an army at once, but batter the strongest walls to the ground, sink down ships, with a thousand men in each, to the bottom of the sea, and when linked together by a chain would cut through masts and rigging, divide hundreds of bodies in the middle, and lay all waste before them, that we often put this powder into large hollow balls of iron, and discharged them by an engine into some city we were besieging, which would rip up pavements, tear the houses to pieces, burst and throw splinters on every side, dashing out the brains of all who came near that I know the ingredients very well, which were cheap and common. I understood the manner of compounding them, and could direct his workmen how to make those tubes of a size proportionable to all other things in his majesty's kingdom, and the largest need not be above a hundred feet long, twenty or thirty of which tubes, charged with the proper quantity of powder and balls, would batter down the walls of the strongest town in his dominions in a few hours— or destroy the whole metropolis, if ever it should pretend to dispute his absolute commands. This I humbly offered to his majesty, as a small tribute of acknowledgment in turn for so many marks that I had received of his royal favor and protection. The king was struck with horror at the description I had given of those terrible engines, and the proposal I had made. He was amazed how so impotent and groveling an insect as I— these were his expressions, could entertain such inhuman ideas, and in so familiar a manner as to appear wholly unmoved, at all the scenes of blood and desolation which I had painted as the common effects of those destructive machines, whereof, he said, some evil genius enemy to mankind must have been the first contriver. As for himself, he protested, that although few things delighted him so much as new discoveries in art or in nature, yet he would rather lose half his kingdom than be privy to such a secret, which he commanded me, as I valued any life, never to mention any more. A strange effect of narrow principles and views, that a prince possessed of every quality which procures veneration, love, and esteem, of strong parts, great wisdom, and profound learning, endowed with admirable talents, and almost adored by his subjects should, from a nice, unnecessary scruple, whereof in Europe we can have no conception, let slip an opportunity put into his hands that would have made him absolute master of the lives, the liberties, and the fortunes of his people. Neither do I say this, with the least intention to detract from the many virtues of that excellent king whose character, I am sensible will, on this account, be very much lessened in the opinion of an English reader, but I take this defect among them to have risen from their ignorance by not having hitherto reduced politics into a science, as the more acute wits of Europe have done. For I remember very well in a discourse one day with the king, when I happened to say, there were several thousand books among us written upon the art of government, It gave him, directly contrary to my intention, a very mean opinion of our understandings. He professed both to abominate and despise all mystery, refinement, and intrigue, either in a prince or a minister. He could not tell what I meant by secrets of state, where an enemy or some rival nation were not in the case. He confined the knowledge of governing within very narrow bounds to common sense and reason, to justice and lenity, to the speedy determination of civil and criminal causes, with some other obvious topics which are not worth considering, and he gave it for his opinion, that whoever could make two ears of corn or two blades of grass to grow upon a spot of the ground where only one grew before, would deserve better of mankind, and do more essential service to his country than the whole race of politicians put together. The learning of this people is very defective, consisting only in morality, history, poetry, and mathematics, wherein they must be allowed to excel. But the last of these is wholly applied to what might be useful in life, to the improvement of agriculture and all mechanical arts, so that among us it would be little esteemed. And as to ideas, entities, abstractions, and transcendentals— I could never drive the least conception into their heads. No law in that country must exceed in words the number of letters in their alphabet, which consist only of two and twenty. But indeed few of them extend even to that length. They are expressed in the most plain and simple terms, wherein these people are not mercurial enough to discover upon one interpretation, and to write comment upon any law is a capital crime. As to the decision of civil causes or proceedings against criminals, their precedents are so few that they have little reason to boast of any extraordinary skill in either. They have had the art of printing, as well as the Chinese, time out of mind, but their liberties are not very large, for that of the king, which is reckoned the largest, does not amount to above a thousand volumes, placed in a gallery of twelve hundred feet long, whence I had the liberty to borrow what books I pleased. The Queen's Joiner had contrived in one of Gloomdowglitch's rooms a kind of wooden machine, five and twenty feet high, formed like a standing ladder. The steps were each fifty feet long. It was indeed a movable pair of stairs, the lowest end placed at ten feet distance from the wall of the chamber. The book I had a mind to read was put up leaning against the wall, I first mounted to the upper step of the ladder, and, turning my face towards the book, began at the top of the page, and so walking to the right and left about eight or ten paces, according to the length of the lines, till I had gotten a little below the level of mine eyes, and then descending gradually, till I came to the bottom, after which I mounted again, and began the other page in the same manner, and so turned over the leaf, which I could easily do with both my hands, For it was as thick and stiff as pasteboard, and in the largest folios not above eighteen or twenty feet long. Their style is clear, masculine, and smooth, but not florid, for they avoid nothing more than multiplying unnecessary words or using various expressions. I have perused many of their books, especially those in history and morality. Among the rest I was much diverted with a little old treatise, which always lay in Gloomdowglitch's bedchamber, and belonged to her governess, a grave elderly gentlewoman who dealt in writings of morality and devotion. The book treats of the weakness of humankind, and is in little esteem except among the women and the vulgar. However, I was curious to see what the author of that country could say upon such a subject. This writer went through all the usual topics of European moralists, showing how diminutive, contemptible, and helpless an animal was man in his own nature, how unable to defend himself from inclemencies of the air, or the fury of wild beasts, how much he was excelled by one creature in strength, by another in speed, by a third in foresight, by a fourth in industry. He added, that nature was degenerated in these latter declining ages of the world, and could now produce only small abortive births in comparison of those in ancient times. He said, It was very reasonable to think not only that species of men were originally much larger, but also that there must have been giants in former ages which, as it is asserted by history and in tradition, so it has been confirmed by huge bones and skulls, casually dug up in several parts of the kingdom, far exceeding the common dwindled race of men in our days. He argued that the very laws of nature absolutely required we should have been made, in the beginning of size more large and robust, not so liable to destruction from every little accident, of a tile falling from a house, or a stone cast from the hand of a boy, or being drowned in a little brook. From this way of reasoning the author drew several moral applications, useful in the conduct of life, but needless here to repeat. For my own part I could not avoid reflecting how universally this talent was spread, of drawing lectures in morality, or indeed rather matter of discontent and repining, from the quarrels we raise with nature, And I believe, upon a strict inquiry, those quarrels might be shown as ill grounded among us as they are among that people. As to their military affairs, they boast that the king's army consists of a thousand and seventy six thousand foot and thirty two thousand horse. If that may be called an army, which is made up of tradesmen in the several cities and the farmers in the country, whose commanders are only the nobility and gentry. Without pay or reward, they are indeed perfect enough in their exercises, and under very good discipline, wherein I saw no great merit, for how should it be otherwise, where every farmer is under the command of his own landlord, and every citizen under that of the principal men in his own city, chosen after the manner of Venice by ballot. I have often seen the militia of Lord Brugrud drawn out to exercise. In a great field near the city of twenty miles square, they were in all not above twenty-five thousand foot and six thousand horse, but it was impossible for me to compute their number considering the space of ground they took up. A cavalier mounted on a large steed might be about ninety feet high. I have seen this whole body of horse, upon a word of command, draw their swords at once and brandish them in the air. Imagination can figure nothing so grand, so surprising, and so astonishing, it looked as if ten thousand flashes of lightning were darting at the same time from every quarter of the sky. I was curious to know how this prince, to whose dominions there is no access from any other country, came to think of armies, or to teach his people the practice of military discipline, but I was soon informed that— By both conversation and reading their histories, for, in the course of many ages, they have been troubled with the same disease to which the whole race of mankind is subject the nobility often contending for power, the people for liberty, and the king for absolute dominion. All which, however happily tempered by the laws of that kingdom, have been sometimes violated by each of the three parties. And have more than once occasioned civil wars, the last whereof was happily put an end by this prince's grandfather in a general composition, and the militia then settled with common consent has been ever since kept in the strictest duty. Part 2, Chapter 8 The King and Queen make a progress to the frontiers, the author attends them the manner in which he leaves the country very particularly related, he returns to England. I had always a strong impulse that I should some time recover my liberty, though it was impossible to conjecture by what means, or to form any project with the least hope of succeeding. The ship in which I had sailed was the first ever known to be driven within sight of that coast, and the king had given strict orders— that if at any time another appeared it should be taken ashore, and with all its crew and passengers brought in a tumbril to Lord Rookwood. He was strongly bent to get me a woman of my own size, by whom I might propagate the breed, but I think I should rather have died than undergone the disgrace of leaving a posterity to be kept in cages like tame canary-birds, and— perhaps in time sold about the kingdom to persons of quality for curiosities. I was indeed treated with very much kindness. I was the favorite of a great king and queen, and the delight of the whole court, but it was upon such a foot as ill became the dignity of humankind. I could never forget those domestic pledges I had left behind me. I wanted to be among people with whom I could converse upon even terms, and walk about the streets and fields without being afraid of being trod to death like a frog or a young puppy. But my deliverance came sooner than I expected, and in a manner not very common, the whole story and circumstance of which I shall faithfully relate. I had now been two years in this country, and about the beginning of the third, gloom Clutch and I attended the king and queen, in a progress to the south coast of the kingdom, I was carried, as usual, in my travelling-box, which, as I have already described, was a very convenient closet of twelve feet wide, and I had ordered a hammock to be fixed by silken ropes from the four corners at the top to break the jolts, when a servant carried me before him on horseback as I sometimes desired, and would often sleep in my hammock while we were upon the road. On the roof of my closet, not directly over the middle of the hammock, I ordered the joiner to cut out a hole of a foot square to give me air in hot weather as I slept, which hole I shut as pleasure with a board that drew backward and forward through a groove. When we came to our journey's end, the king thought proper to pass a few days at a palace he has near Flan- flasnik a city within eighteen English miles of the seaside. gloom downclitch and I were much fatigued, I had gotten a small cold, but the poor girl was so ill as to be confined to her chamber. I longed to see the ocean, which must be the only scene of my escape, if ever it should happen. I pretended to be worse than I really was, and desired leave to take fresh air of the sea, with a page whom I was very fond of, and who had sometimes been trusted with me. I shall never forget, with what unwillingness Gloom Dalkledge consented, nor the strict charge she gave the page to be careful of me, bursting at the same time into a flood of tears, as if she had some foreboding of what was to happen. The boy took me out in my box about half an hour's walk from the palace, towards the rocks on the seashore. I ordered him to set me down, and lifting up one of my sashes cast many a wistful, melancholy look towards the sea. I found myself not very well, and told the page that I had a mind to take a nap in my hammock, which I hoped would do me good. I got in, and the boy shut the window close down, to keep out the cold. I soon fell asleep, and all I can conjecture is while I slept, the page, thinking no danger could happen, went among the rocks to look for birds' eggs, having before observed him from my window searching about, and picking up one or two in the clefts. Be that as it will, I found myself suddenly awaked with a violent pull upon the ring, which was fastened at the top of my box for the conveniency of carriage. I felt my box raised very high in the air, and then borne forward with prodigious speed. The first jolt had like to have shaken me out of my hammock, but afterward the motion was easy enough. I called out several times, as loud as I could raise my voice, but all to no purpose— I looked towards my windows, and could see nothing but the clouds and sky. I heard a noise just over my head like the clapping of wings, and then began to perceive the woeful condition I was in, that some eagle had got the ring of my box in his beak with an intent to let it fall on a rock like a tortoise in a shell, and then pick out my body and devour it, for the sagacity and smell of this bird enables him to discover his quarry at a great distance— though better concealed than I could be within a two-inch board. In a little time I observed the noise and flutter of wings to increase very fast, and my box was tossed up and down like a sign in a windy day. I heard several bangs or buffets, and I thought given to the eagle, for such I am certain it must have been that held the ring of my box in his beak, and then all of a sudden felt myself falling perpendicularly down, for above a minute, but with such incredible swiftness that I almost lost my breath. My fall was stopped by a terrible squash that sounded louder to my ears than the cataract of Niagara, after which I was quite in the dark for another minute, and then my box began to rise so high that I could see light from the tops of my windows. I now perceived I was fallen into the sea, My box, by the weight of my body, the goods that were in, and the broad plates of iron fixed for strength at the four corners of the top and bottom, floated about five feet deep in the water. I did then, and do now suppose, that the eagle which flew away with my box was pursued by two or three others, and forced to let me drop, while he defended himself against the rest, who hoped to share in the prey." The plates of iron fastened at the bottom of the box, for those were the strongest, preserved balance while it fell and hindered it from being broken on the surface of the water. Every joint of it was well grooved, and the door did not move on hinges, but up and down like a sash, which kept my closet so tight that very little water came in. I got with much difficulty out of my hammock, having first ventured to draw back the slipboard on the roof already mentioned contrived on purpose to let in air, for want of which I found myself almost stifled. How often did I then wish myself with my dear Gloom Dowclitch, from whom one single hour had so far divided me, and I may say with truth that in the midst of my own misfortunes I could not forbear lamenting my poor nurse, the grief she would suffer for my loss, the displeasure of the queen, and the ruin of her fortune— Perhaps many travellers have not been under greater difficulties and distress than I was at this juncture, expecting every moment to see my box dashed to pieces, or at least overset by the first violent blast or rising wave. A breach in one single pane of glass would have been immediate death, nor could anything have preserved the windows but the strong lattice-wires placed on the outside against accidents in travelling. I saw the water ooze in at several crannies, although the leaks were not considerable, and I endeavored to stop them as well as I could. I was not able to lift up the roof of my closet, which otherwise I certainly should have done, and sat on the top of it, where I might at least preserve myself some hours longer than being shut up, as I may call it, in the hold. Or, if I escaped these dangers for a day or two, what could I expect but a miserable death of cold and hunger?' I was four hours under these circumstances expecting, and indeed wishing, every moment to be my last. I have already told the reader that there were two strong staples fixed upon that side of my box, which had no window, and into which the servant, who used to carry me on horseback, would put a leathern belt and buckle it about his waist. Being in this disconsolate state, I heard, or at least thought I heard— some kind of grating noise on that side of my box where the staples were fixed, and soon after I began to fancy that the box was pulled or towed along the sea, for I now and then felt a sort of tugging which made the waves rise near the tops of my windows, leaving me almost in the dark. This gave me some faint hopes of relief, although I was not able to imagine how it could be brought about. I ventured to unscrew one of my chairs, which were always fastened to the floor, and having made a hard shift to screw it down again directly under the slipping-board that I had lately opened, I mounted on the chair, and putting my mouth as near I could to the hole, I called for help in a loud voice, and in all the languages I understood. I then fastened my handkerchief to a stick I usually carried, and thrusting it up the hole, waved it several times in the air, that if any boat or ship were near, the seaman might conjecture some unhappy mortal to be shut up in the box. I found no effect from all I could do, but plainly perceived my closet to be moved along, and in the space of an hour or better, that side of the box where the staples were and had no windows, struck against something that was hard. I apprehended it to be a rock, and found myself tossed more than ever, I plainly heard a noise upon the cover of my closet like that of a cable, and the grating of it as it passed through the ring. I then found myself hoisted up by degrees at least three feet higher than I was before, whereupon I again thrust up my stick and handkerchief, calling for help till I was almost hoarse. In return to which I heard a great shout repeated three times, giving me such transports of joy, as are not to be conceived but by those who feel them. I now heard a trampling over my head and somebody calling through the hole with a loud voice in the English tongue, If there be anybody below, let them speak. I answered, I was an Englishman, drawn by ill fortune into the greatest calamity that ever any creature underwent, and begged by all that was moving to be delivered out of the dungeon I was in. The voice replied, I was safe, for my box was fastened to their ship, and the carpenter should immediately come and saw a hole in the cover large enough to pull me out. I answered that was needless and would take up too much time, for there was no more to be done but let one of the crew put his finger into the ring and take the box out of the sea into the ship, and so into the captain's cabin. Some of them, upon hearing me talk so wildly, thought I was mad, others laughed for indeed it never came into my head that I was now got among people of my own stature and strength. The carpenter came, and in a few minutes sought a passage about four feet square, then let down a small ladder, upon which I mounted, and thence was taken into the ship in a very weak condition. The sailors were all in amazement, and asked me a thousand questions, which I had no inclination to answer. I was equally confounded at the sight of so many pygmies, for such I took them to be, after having so long accustomed mine eyes to the monstrous objects I had left. But the captain, Mr. Thomas Wilcox, an honest, worthy, Shropshire man, observing I was ready to faint, took me into his cabin, gave me a cordial to comfort me, and made me turn in upon his own bed, advising me to take a little rest, of which I had great need." Before I went to sleep, I gave him to understand that I had some valuable furniture in my box, too good to be lost, a fine hammock, a handsome field-bed, two chairs, a table, and a cabinet, that my closet was hung on all sides, or rather quilted with silk and cotton, and that if he would let one of the crew bring my closet into his cabin, I would open it there before him and show him my goods." captain, hearing me utter these absurdities, concluded I was raving, however, I supposed to pacify me, he promised to give order as I desired, and going upon deck sent some of his men down into my closet whence, as I afterward found, they drew up all my goods and stripped off the quilting, but the chairs, cabinet, and bedstead, being screwed to the floor, were much damaged by the ignorance of the seamen who tore them up by force." Then they knocked off some of the boards for the use of the ship, and when they had got all they had a mind for, let the hull drop into the sea, which by reason of many breaches made in the bottom and sides sunk to rights. And indeed I was glad not to have been a spectator of the havoc they made, because I am confident it would have sensibly touched me by bringing former passages into my mind which I would rather have forgot. I slept some hours, but perpetually disturbed with dreams of the place I had left, and the dangers which I had escaped. However, upon waking, I found myself much recovered. It was now about eight o'clock at night, and the captain ordered supper immediately, thinking I had already fasted too long. He entertained me with great kindness, observing me not to look wildly or talk inconsistently, and when we were left alone, desired that I would give him a relation of my travels, and by what accident I came to be set adrift in that monstrous wooden chest. He said that about twelve o'clock at noon, as he was looking through his glass, he spied it at a distance, and thought it was a sail, which he had a mind to make, being not much out of his course, in hopes of buying some biscuit, his own beginning to fall short. That upon coming nearer and finding his error, he sent out his longboat to discover what it was— that his men came back in a fright, swearing they had seen a swimming-house. That he laughed at their folly, and went himself in the boat, ordering his men to take a strong cable along with them. That the weather being calm, he rowed round me several times, observed my windows and wire lattices that defended them. That he discovered two staples upon one side, which was all of boards, without any passage for light. He then commanded his men to row up to that side, and fastening a cable to one of the staples, ordered them to tow my chest, as they called it, toward the ship. When it was there he gave directions to fasten another cable to the ring fixed in the corner, and to raise up my chest with pulleys, which all the sailors were not able to do above two or three feet. He said, They saw my stick and handkerchief thrust out the hole, and concluded that some unhappy man must be shut up in the cavity. I asked whether he or the crew had seen any prodigious birds in the air, about the time he first discovered me, to which he answered that discourse in this matter with the sailors while I was asleep, one of them said he had observed three eagles flying towards the north, but remarked nothing of their being larger than the usual size, which I suppose must be imputed to the great height they were at, and he could not guess the reason of my question." I then asked the captain how far he reckoned we might be from land. He said, by the best computation he could make, that we were at least a hundred leagues. I assured him that he must be mistaken by almost half, for I had not left the country whence I came above two hours before I dropped into the sea. Whereupon he began again to think that my brain was disturbed, of which he gave me a hint, and advised me to go to bed in a cabin he had provided. I assured him— I was well refreshed with his good entertainment and company, and as much in my senses as ever I was in my life. He then grew serious, and desired to ask me freely, whether I were not troubled in my mind by the consciousness of some enormous crime, for which I was punished, at the command of some prince, by exposing me in that chest, as great criminals in other countries have been forced to see in a leaky vessel, without provisions, for although he should be sorry to have taken so ill a man into his ship, yet he would engage his word and set me safe ashore in the first port where we arrived. He added that his suspicions were much increased by some very absurd speeches I had delivered at first to his sailors, and afterwards to himself in relation to my closet or chest, as well as by my odd looks and behavior while I was at supper." I begged his patience to hear me tell my story, which I faithfully did, from the last time I left England to the moment he first discovered me, and as truth always forces its way into rational minds, so this honest worthy gentleman, who had some tincture of learning and very good sense, was immediately convinced of my candor and veracity. But further to confirm all I had said, I entreated him to give order that my cabinet should be brought— of which I had the key in my pocket, for he had already informed me how the seamen disposed of my closet. I opened it in his own presence, and showed him the small collection of rarities I made in the country from which I had been so strangely delivered. There was the comb I had contrived out of the stumps of the king's beard, and another of the same materials but fixed into a pairing of Her Majesty's thumbnail, which served for the back— There was a collection of needles and pins, from a foot to half a yard long, four wasp stings like joiner's tacks, some combings of the queen's hair, a gold ring, which one day she made me a present of, in a most obliging manner, taking it from her little finger, and throwing it over my head like a collar. I desired the captain would please to accept this ring in return for his civilities, which he absolutely refused. I showed him a corn that I had cut off with my own hand from a maid-of-honor's toe. It was about the bigness of a Kentish Pippin, and grown so hard, that when I returned to England I got it hollowed into a cup and set in silver. Lastly, I desired him to see the breeches I had then on which were made of a mouse's skin. I could force nothing on him but a footman's tooth, which I observed him to examine with great curiosity, and found he had a fancy for it. "'He received it with abundance of thanks, more than such a trifle could deserve. "'It was drawn by an unskillful surgeon in a mistake from one of Gloomdowclitch's men, "'who was afflicted with a toothache, but it was as sound as any in his head. "'I got it cleaned and put it into my cabinet. "'It was about a foot long and four inches in diameter. "'The captain was very well satisfied with this plain relation I had given him, and said— He hoped, when we returned to England, I would oblige the world by putting it on paper, and making it public. My answer was, that we were overstocked with books of travels, that nothing could now pass which was not extraordinary, wherein I doubted some authors less consulted truth than their own vanity or interest, or the diversion of ignorant readers, that my story could contain little beside common events, without these ornamental descriptions of strange plants, trees, birds, and other animals, or of the barbarous customs and idolatry of savage people, with which most writers abound. However, I thanked him for his good opinion, and promised to take the matter into my thoughts. He said he wondered at one thing very much, which was to hear me speak so loud, asking me, Whether the king or queen of that country were thick of hearing, I told him it was what I had been used to for above two years past, and that I admired as much at the voices of him and his men, who seemed to me only to whisper, and yet I could hear them well enough, but when I spoke in that country it was like a man talking in the streets to another looking out from the top of a steeple, unless when I was placed on a table or held in any person's hand. I told him I had likewise observed another thing that, when I first got into the ship and the sailors stood all about me, I thought they were the most contemptible creatures I had ever beheld, for indeed, while I was in that prince's country I could never endure to look in a glass after mine eyes had been accustomed to such prodigious objects, because the comparison gave me so despicable a conceit of myself.' The captain said that while we were at supper he observed me to look at everything with a sort of wonder, and that I often seemed hardly able to contain my laughter, which he knew not well how to take, but imputed it to some disorder in my brain. I answered it was very true, and I wondered how I could forbear, when I saw his dishes of the size of a silver threepence, a leg of pork hardly a mouthful, a cup not so big as a nutshell— and so I went on, describing the rest of his household stuff and provisions after the same manner. For although the queen had ordered a little equipage of all things necessary for me while I was in her service, yet my ideas were wholly taken up with what I saw on every side of me, and I winked at my own littleness as people do at their own faults. The captain understood my raillery very well, and merrily replied with the old English proverb that he doubted mine eyes were bigger than my belly, for he did not observe my stomach so good, although I had fasted all day, and continuing in his mirth protested that he would have gladly given a hundred pounds to have seen my closet in the eagle's bill, and afterwards in its fall from so great a height into the sea, which would certainly have been a most astonishing object, worthy to have the description of it transmitted to future ages." And the comparison of phaeton was so obvious that he could not forbear applying it, although I did not much admire the conceit. The captain, having been at Tonquin, was, in his return to England, driven northeastward to the latitude of forty four degrees and longitude of one forty three. But meeting a trade wind two days after I came on board him, we sailed southward a long time and coasting New Holland kept her course west-southwest, and then south-southwest, till we doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Our voyage was very prosperous, but I shall not trouble the reader with a journal of it. The captain called in at one or two ports, and sent in his long-boat for provisions and fresh water, but I never went out of the ship till we came into the Downs, which was on the third day of June, 1706, about nine months after my escape, I offered to leave my goods in security for payment of my freight, but the captain protested he would not receive one farthing. We took a kind leave of each other, and I made him promise he would come and see me at my house in Red Riff. I hired a horse and guide for five shillings, which I borrowed off the captain. As I was on the road, observing the littleness of the houses, the trees, the cattle, and the people— I began to think myself in Lilliput. I was afraid of trampling on every traveller I met, and often called aloud to have them stand out of the way, so that I had like to have gotten one or two broken heads for my impertinence. When I came to my own house, for which I was forced to inquire, one of the servants opening the door, I bent down to go in, like a goose under a gate, for fear of striking my head. My wife ran out to embrace me, but I stooped lower than her knees, thinking that she could otherwise never be able to reach my mouth. My daughter kneeled to ask my blessing, but I could not see her till she arose, having been so long used to stand with my head and eyes erect to above sixty feet, and then I went to take her up with one hand by the waist. I looked down upon the servants, and one or two friends who were at the house, as if they had been pygmies and I a giant. I told my wife, She had been too thrifty, for I found she had starved herself and her daughter to nothing. In short, I behaved myself so unaccountably, that they were all of the captain's opinion when he first saw me, and concluded I had lost my wits. This I mention as an instance of the great power of habit and prejudice. In a little time I and my family and friends came to a right understanding, but my wife protested— I should never go to sea any more, although my evil destiny so ordered that she had not power to hinder me, as the reader may know hereafter. In the meantime, I here conclude the second part of my unfortunate voyages. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been part two, chapters seven and eight of Gulliver's Travels. And next week, we will be beginning part three, which is a voyage to Laputa, Balna Barbie, Lucknag, Trib, and Japan. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting to help me improve the quality. You can find all of my patron benefits at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature. And please also follow me on Instagram at Relaxing Literature and on Twitter at Relaxing lit A-S-M-R to leave your comments, questions, and suggestions, or just to stay updated on the things I'm reading and plan to read next. Thank you so much for listening. Good night.